Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to this part of the service. Uh, this morning, we're, uh, we're going to look at a few different scriptures that seem at first glance to, at first reading, to contradict each other. And we're also going to look at, uh, we're going to look at, I think, some theology that has, um, I don't know if plagued is the right word, but has certainly influenced us dramatically for the last 500 years, even though most of us probably don't even realize it. We're going to, uh, first of all, we're, we're some of the, the basis for the message is that we believe in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is given for, for our instruction and for us to learn from. However, since the time of Martin Luther, we have, we have even though most of us would say that we believe this, Luther definitely has influenced us in how we see Scripture. Maybe not so much in our Anabaptist circles, but definitely in Western American Christianity. And a lot of that comes from his Luther, as we all know, he, he uh, translated Scripture from the original Latin. I'd like to read to you the preface that he put in front of the New Testament. In other words, he gave us plenty of his opinion with the translation. So he writes, and I quote, From all this you can now judge all the books and decide among them which are the best. It's ironic. He tells us we can decide which are the best, but then he tells us. John's Gospel and St. Paul's Epistles, especially that to the Romans, and St. Peter's first epistle, are the true kernel and marrow of all the books. They ought rightly to be the first books, and it would be advisable for every Christian to read them first and most. John's gospel is the one tender, true, chief gospel, far, far to be preferred to the other three and placed high above them. So too, the epistles of St. Paul and St. Peter far surpass the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In a word, St. Peter's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistle, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and good for you to know, even though you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to them. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel. So, 
this morning, we want to, in light of that, in light of us believing that all Scripture is, is profitable for us, we want to examine James compared to Paul, specifically a few verses that seem at first glance to directly contradict each other, which I'm sure is part of why Luther had a problem with James. A couple things to keep in mind as we compare Scripture or as we look at Scripture is that sometimes different meanings of words, sometimes uh, the way cultures see, use words can, can have a, a, an impact on how we understand Scripture. A couple examples of that would be last Sunday morning, Laverne mentioned that he's glad that he is, doesn't have to go to a rock concert or something like that. My first thought was he's going to South Bend or water somewhere to a, listen to a rock band. I thought, well, I, I guess I'm glad that he doesn't want to do that. But then he goes on to explain that he's glad that the rocks don't have to cry out, meaning the stones. So if he wouldn't have explained, I would have went home thinking that, boy, he sure is glad he doesn't have to go listen to some rock band. Or another example would be in, in the UK, in England, if you had some friends over for lunch and you said, well, let's go out after lunch and we'll play some football, what would they do? They would bring out their soccer ball. And who is right? I mean, it's, you know, it's differences in how we use words. And so those are things that take place in Scripture through translations and through us living in a different culture. There's also the thing of sometimes a certain writer will mention something, but maybe not the complete, maybe not everything about that subject. For example, let's say that Um, you know, I really like peanut butter pie, and let's say that I'm having a conversation with a friend about this peanut butter pie, and I say, well, you use peanut butter to make the peanut butter pie, right? But I don't mention that you also use vanilla pudding. Now, does that mean that when my friend goes home and tells his friends that Jake says you use peanut butter to make this peanut butter pie, and they're thinking of a Reese cup or something, (laughs) So does that mean then that there is no vanilla pudding? No. It just simply means that I didn't mention it. <laughs> so with those things, remembering some of those things, let's look, <coughs> let's look at our scriptures. First, we're going to start with Romans 4. First four verses. <coughs> what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So these works don't count before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. 
Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So what Paul is saying is, if you are working, it's going to be counted as debt against you and not as grace. So if we just take these four verses, we're going to see that your works don't count. Let's go look at James. James chapter 2, verses 20 to 24. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So here, James quotes the same verse in Genesis. And if we just take these two passages in Scripture, it appears fairly obviously that he's making the exact opposite point. So how do we reconcile the two? And I think it's very important. First of all, let's compare the two. We can see that, that both quoted the same verse, and they are making opposite points. I think it's important for us to, to look at this because I think this this, this topic of faith, of a faith-based salvation by salvation by grace through faith alone versus a work salvation, this is at the heart of how most of us view ourselves before God. It's important that we get a handle of this, and it's important that we don't just take either Romans or James in order to try to understand this. <clears throat> it's also at the heart of how most of us live out our lives. It's at the heart of, of how most of us choose to live our lives, meaning how we, the vocation we have, how we dress, how we act, what we do socially. It's, it's, it's at the heart of all that. <clears throat> I also believe that this issue, this topic, is, is at mo most Christianity in, in America, we tend to be in one extreme or the other. We tend, to, we tend to live, most of us tend to live our lives either biased or, or one way or another. So before we look at more scripture, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about this theology of what I would call twin ideas. What we have here is, is two ideas or two, 
two lines of thought that somewhat seemingly are contradictory and yet they they go hand in hand it's like the two opposite sides of a quarter you can't talk if you start having conversation with somebody about let's say works then sooner or later someone's going to bring up the subject of yes but what about you know what does paul say about being saved by grace and there are more things like that in in scripture um, how about God's sovereignty versus man's free will? If I would start talking about God's sovereignty, sooner or later somebody's going to say, well, but what about man's free will? And the same way with God's love and God's wrath. You know, so you have in Scripture, you have these, these pairs of ideas that you can't really do justice to one without having to examine the other. <coughs> Now, there are several different ways to, to examine twin or pairs of ideas. Most of us don't consciously think about that, but I think we're going to look at that a little bit before we look at more scripture. I think most of us will recognize these models as, as we look at them. The first one is simply what I call the balance model. You have two a set of ideas, and and we 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 talk about needing to balance them. And we, I've used it. We we do that quite a bit. The problem is, this model is often it doesn't bring clarity to to what is truth. It's it's tends to, to bring lukewarm theology, as in let's, you know, don't, don't get out there too far or you'll tip the teeter-totter one way or the other. Let's just, you know, let's just keep it, kind of just keep it balanced here. The second one is the road ditch model, and I think all of us have used this at one point. The problem with this, again, is what, where is truth in this whole thing? I have yet to, I mean, who in here among us is going to say, well, I'm in the ditch here. I, on this topic, I'm in the ditch. I know I'm in the ditch. No, somehow we always find ourselves, most people I've talked to, we always find ourselves, we're pretty much in the middle of the road right here. And everybody else either is, they're a little over here or they're a little over here or, or, or somewhere like that. And there's really no def. The road is pretty wide, really. It's about as wide as from the most extreme, you know. So it, it doesn't really help us to bring any, it doesn't really help us to bring any direction to, to these pairs of ideas. Maybe the most destructive model is the tension model. And we probably, most of us, haven't heard this, this phrase, the tension model, but I think most of us have seen the results of this model being used. And this idea is simply that you have two pairs of ideas, everybody knows that they are different, and this creates a tension. And so you try to, you, basically you have this big tug of war going on, truth is in the center, and so the, the way this model works is that if, if 
one side gets a little more traction than the other side, they either get a bigger tractor or, or some, you know, they pull a little harder. Inevitably, this model almost always causes division. This model, the tension model, it creates tension. Sometimes in, sometimes in, in I've heard the phrase used that it, it creates a good tension. I would, I would disagree with that. I don't know that that, I don't know that there is such a thing. <coughs> Give you an example of this model being used. And this is a little bit, I hesitated to use this because I don't have really exact numbers. I picked this up when I was at Faith Builders. Um, within our Anabaptist culture, this is a little bit how it looks. MCUSA, that's all Mennonite Church USA Mennonites. And there's actually a lot more of those in other countries as well. This is just simply in USA. Anabaptists who would classify themselves as old orders, 300,000 plus, that's, and, and it's a little hard to really put a number to this, but I, we can see what's ha going to happen here. Mennonites or Anabaptists, Anabaptists who call themselves neither old order or MCUSA are approximately 20,000. <clears> now, if you think a little bit about what has happened in Anabaptism in the last 100 years, I think we've seen the tension model work. We have seen how that, <clears throat> within Anabaptism, there began to be some tension on, on this very subject that we're looking at this morning. And with time in different places, and it, it, it pulled apart. And to give you a little bit of an example um, of how extreme this has become, MCUSA, Goshen College here in, in Goshen, as well as uh, Bethlehem, what? No, there's a college in Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, Eastern Mennonite. Those two colleges, the first Christian colleges in America to accept homosexuality in leadership. So, as Christians, these these Anabaptist churches are, I'm not sure how else to define it or to say it, it seems they're as liberal as you can get it. On the other hand, I think all of us have some experience with on the old order side. And I know some old orders that wouldn't even allow a, an English Bible. And so, so, so there's the extremes. I would like to present a different model for comparing twin ideas. And I call it the first and second thing model. 
And it looks like this. And it's based on the idea <coughs> that both ideas are equally important. It's based on the idea that you cannot separate the two. And it also carries with it the idea that one of these is preeminent. One of these ideas is preeminent, meaning that it comes first. Hence, the first and second thing model. So our examples, let's say we're talking about God's sovereignty and the free will of man. Is one of those preeminent? Well, yes. Obviously, God created man, so God's sovereignty is, is first. If we're discussing this, does it mean that man's free will is not important? No. It's just as important. However, it is the second thing. If there is tension between the two, we need to keep these first and second things in proper order. <coughs> By looking at things this way, I believe that any differences that these in, in twin in pairs of ideas we can we can resolve or reconcile our differences rather than rather than having to decide either or or how we it 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 brings together brings brings the ideas together rather than pulling them apart. So, using this model, I'd like to look at a few more scriptures for, to, to look at how we harmonize Paul and James. We're going to go back to James, and we're going to look at a few more verses in that passage in James chapter 2. James starts in, in verse 14. And says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If your brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself... If it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered Isaac his son on the altar... Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. A couple key things in this passage that we want to look at. The first is in in, in verse 17. Thus also faith by itself... If it does not have works, is dead. And again, at the end of verse 18, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is saying he does have faith. Again, in verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And again, at the end in verse 26, so faith without works is dead also. So if we look at that, first thing we'll we'll see that James is not saying that you do not need to have faith. He's simply saying that if you have genuine faith, There will be some evidence. There will be some works. Notice also what he says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, if you remember, this happened Abraham offering Isaac on the altar happened quite a bit, quite a while after God had said that Abraham is righteous. That, God told Abraham that before Isaac was born. So James is saying here, when he quotes that passage in Genesis, he's simply saying that by Abraham's obedience... That was the the proof or the evidence of his faith that had been talked about beforehand. So James is writing from the perspective that works is the results of genuine faith. That something will be evident in your life as the results of having faith. A genuine faith. Let's go back and look at Romans. To get the perspective of what Paul's writing about, I'd like to read to you. I don't have this on the overhead, but back in in, in verse in in chapter three. Verse 21 of Romans, if you want to turn there, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So he's, he, Paul's been making the case that whether you're Jew or Gentile, you, all of us, are in need of grace. And, and that we cannot, none of us, whether you're a Jew or whoever you are, we cannot earn our way into, sal- into to, to salvation. 
So he's saying that righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It had been prophesied. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So Paul's making the case that through faith, we, we can have the propitiation of our sins, Jesus Christ, and we can be redeemed, and God's righteousness will be imputed onto us. Now, So, so Paul is coming from a different perspective than what James had been. Go back just a little further in, in, uh, in Romans ver- chapter 3, verse 8. And we, can, we see here that Paul is quite aware that what he is teaching can easily be distorted. He says, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Are we slanderously report? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So even at that time, people had already been distorting Paul's teachings about grace. Again, in in Romans 5, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so he knows that this could be distorted. He goes on in chapter 6, which is just two verses later. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? So, it's clear that Paul is not making a case that we can live as we choose. I'd like to go now to Galatians and see what Paul says about works. Now, this is Galatians chapter 5, and remember, Paul had been making a case to the Galatians to not go back to, to being under the law, as, as they have been wanting to do. And he says at the beginning there of chapter 5, to stand fast in the liberty which they have been called in. And here in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So Paul is saying that if you have faith, it will be worked out in, in your life by how you love your brother. We see that again in the same chapter, verse 13. He's saying here, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Remember, that's what he's writing about here in Galatians 5. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is not making a case at all that we can live our lives as we please. As it would appear, if we look at those few verses in, in chapter 4. So if we use our model to compare these ideas, I think we'll see that Paul and James both agree that faith comes first, that accepting Jesus Christ by faith is the first step. But out of that faith, there will be evidence. There will be a changed life. And that is the second thing. Now, you cannot have one or the other. And yet, one comes first. Well, this morning, I would like to, obviously, this has not been a, this has not been a complete study on this topic. I feel I've just really just scratched the surface. I trust I have, I have sparked your interest in maybe pursuing some of this more on your own. In closing, there's a couple things that I would like to leave with you. The first thing is I'd like for us to to consider how we compare the twin compare twin ideas. There are other topics in scripture, there are other topics that we deal with in life that are twin or pairs of ideas and how we view those in comparison to each other makes makes a difference on on how those play out in our lives. Of course, in our topic of harmonizing Paul and James, I trust that we can see clearly that accepting Jesus Christ through faith is the first thing. There's also a second thing that goes with it, and that is genuine faith produces works of love. those thoughts, let's bow for prayer and then Keith, I'll let you close. Father, we are grateful that you have loved us, that you have blessed us. We are grateful that we can spend this time together. Father, I just pray that this morning each of us could look towards you and could, could by faith, Lord, accept your grace on our lives, that we could surrender our lives to you. And that because of this, Lord, that we would love each other the way that you have loved, the way you've called us to love, Father. Just pray, Lord, as we go from here, that each of us could be edifying to those we meet, that those we meet could be able to say that, Lord, they have, they, they have been with Jesus.
Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen.